This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. CBS presents America Changed Forever with CBS News correspondent Jeff Pegues. Good day and welcome to America Changed Forever. This week, my exclusive interview with the head of the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division who is under pressure along with the Biden administration to reverse voting laws that many believe restrict the right to vote. At least 19 states have passed laws reworking voting laws and amid criticism from his own party that he is not doing enough to protect the right to vote, President Biden delivered a speech from Atlanta and pressed the Senate to take action on stalled voting rights legislation. I'm tired of being quiet. Sadly, the United States Senate designed to be the world's greatest deliberative body, has been rendered a shell of its former self. I believe that the threat to our democracy is so grave that we must find a way to pass these voting rights bills. Debate them. Vote. Let the majority prevail. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark is the head of the Civil Rights Division, and in our exclusive interview, I asked her about critics who say that the Department of Justice is moving at a glacial pace to take on these changes to voting laws. Assistant Attorney General Kristen Clark, thanks for joining us. Uh, thank you. So here we are, Americans across the country celebrating or marking MLK Day. What do you think is the state of civil rights in this country right now? Yeah. It's a story where if you take a step back, we have made a lot of progress as a nation, but we've still got a long way to go. And, you know, I am in this job leading the Civil Rights Division at a time when we're still seeing problems when it comes to voting rights, hate crimes, criminal justice, fair housing, education, and so much more. So it's a story of progress, but a moment to really reflect on the fact that we've still got a long way to go. Let's focus on voting rights for now. Uh, um, we, we know that DOJ and your division has filed these lawsuits. Is states across the country enact laws that some people believe restrict voting, especially as it relates to people of color. Would you say that it's people of color who are being targeted by these laws? Yes. You think they are being targeted, specifically? Voting discrimination is alive and well, and our work to protect the right to vote is central to what we do in the Civil Rights Division. It's central to the mission for this Attorney General, ensuring that all Americans, but especially those who are most vulnerable, are able to freely access the ballot is an important priority. There is no doubt that we are seeing efforts to make it harder for people of color and other marginalized groups to vote. And so we can't turn our back on that important work to ensure that everyone has voice in our democracy. 
But while you contend that these are laws that are uh, impacting or that will impact people of color, the, the people sponsoring this legislation, they believe they're trying to make uh, elections safer, uh, more reliable. How do you respond to that? You know, the Voting Rights Act is a law that was born of struggle. Right? Uh, this is a law that was passed in the aftermath of Bloody Sunday when peaceful folks crossed the, that Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama on their quest for access to the ballot. And today, sadly, we continue to see efforts to make it harder for blacks, Latinos, Native Americans to freely have voice. And so what we are focused on today is using every tool that we have in our arsenal to ensure that every American can participate in our democracy. There are Democrats across the country uh, who are voicing concerns. They think DOJ has moved at a glacial pace, the administration has moved at a glacial pace, and that the states enacting what they believe are these restrictive voting laws are gaining too much ground. Your division has filed these lawsuits. Is that all that you're able to do? Is, is that the only power that DOJ has to push back against these things? And is it too little too late? Well, um, we are using every tool that we have, the Voting Rights Act, the National Voter Registration Act, and other federal laws. But as you know, there is an effort before Congress to restore the Voting Rights Act, the John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act. And no doubt that law, if passed by Congress, would give the Justice Department the renewed ability to stand up to many of these voting restrictions and other efforts that we're seeing unfold across the country. All right, so why specifically is the Voting Rights Act that you're referring to, why is that, why do you think that's a silver bullet that could solve a lot of these problems? It's one of the most important and powerful laws ever passed by Congress. And no doubt, uh, the Voting Rights Act, Section 2, Section 5, and other provisions have helped to knock down many of the efforts that we have seen throughout history, throughout the test of time, to make it harder, particularly for people of color to vote. But in 2013, the Supreme Court made that work a lot harder with the Shelby County versus Holder decision. That's, that's a case that you were involved in. Yes. And, and it's a case that has proved devastating because it really has brought to a halt one of the most effective provisions of the law, a provision that had allowed the Justice Department to review in advance laws that impact voting to ensure that they wouldn't harm or make it harder for people of color to vote. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but did, did you say when I asked you about voting rights that, uh, is it, did you say discrimination is, is alive and well? What did you say? Discrimination is alive and well. Voting discrimination is alive and well. Well, who do you think is behind this effort? Well, look, I do not view this as a partisan issue. You don't? I don't. Uh, you know, throughout time, we have seen in bipartisan fashion Congress work to renew uh, the Voting Rights Act. I was there at the White House when President Bush signed uh, the last reauthorization of the bill into law. 
Uh, it passed in Congress in 2006 by a 98 to 0 vote in the Senate. This is about ensuring that every American, regardless of race, regardless of background, has a voice in our democracy. And I'm very hopeful that we can get back to that place where we're not viewing this as a partisan issue. It's an American issue. Yeah, but at this point, you might be the only one in this town that doesn't see it as a partisan issue. Well, I'm hopeful. I'm hopeful that we can get back to that place where we've been time and time again, where Congress has worked in bipartisan fashion to uh, renew uh, the Voting Rights Act. And the Supreme Court issued the Shelby decision. It was devastating. And the work is now on Congress to restore that law. You... Do you feel any pressure to, to get this done? There is an urgency, uh, for sure. Who do you feel that from? The, the public, uh, Democratic supporters of this president? Where is it coming from? Well, the public. I understand uh, the frustration that people feel uh, as we watch states that are working to make it harder for people to vote. And uh, we are standing up to the problem using the tools that we have at the Justice Department. But we need, we do need Congress to act and do their part and restore the John Lewis Voting Rights Restoration Act. There are some people who think, you know, what, what is the big deal asking for an ID? What is the big deal? Yeah, not every ID law is bad. It matters on the co about the context and the shape and form of the law. And we have challenged these laws in the past in particular states where the data makes clear that it's people of color who are often without access to particular forms of ID. States that may like Georgia. States like Texas. Uh, an early iteration of that law said you need ID to vote. That's not bad. But it really is about the detail of the law and what kinds of ID are acceptable. And, you know, when we look at the facts and apply the law, we find that there are certain states where these restrictions are playing out differently across the population and playing out in ways that make it harder, particularly for people of color, to vote. And that's a problem. Do you, well, I'm sure you think these lawsuits will succeed. But these cases can take years. Years. And are resource intensive. Mm -hmm. so, which, is, which is why we need Congress to restore Section 5, because it was a preemptive tool that helped to block these discriminatory laws from ever taking root. So what I'm hearing, though, is you know, people shouldn't expect a resolution to these court cases before the midterm elections. Well, the De Justice Department is going to do its part in the cases that uh, we have filed. They will you know, play out in the courts, and we're going to continue to watch and remain vigilant and use the tools that we have to stand up to this problem. Right, another issue that we're seeing across the country at this moment in history, the FBI says hate crimes were up 11% in 2020, and that's the highest since 2001. Is the Department of Justice doing enough to address this increase? And why do you think hate crimes are rising? Yeah, it's, I'll tell you, it is a priority for Attorney General Garland and for this department, and especially for us in the Civil Rights Division. The data shows a 70% increase when it comes to Asian American Pacific Islanders. Black people remain the group most frequently targeted by hate. This sadly is a problem that has beleaguered us as a country for centuries. 
but we're using the tools that we have, like the Matthew Shepard and James Byrd Hate Crimes Prevention Act, to hold perpetrators accountable. Just last year, we secured a life sentence for a man who killed uh, black people at a Kroger store in Kentucky for one reason, and one reason only, because of the color of their skin. Um, so this is an important priority for us, and we're going to do all that we can to hold perpetrators accountable until we eliminate hate from our society root and branch. Is, is that possible? Is that realistic uh, to eliminate hate root and branch, as you say? Is that really realistic? Well, I'll tell you that the uh, entire division is focused uh, on this problem. We've got our colleagues in the National Security Division. It's a priority for the FBI. It's a priority for us in the Civil Rights Division. And we are not going to turn our back on the victims and communities that are targeted by hate. Let's talk about policing. Your division uh, has started to reapply pattern for practice investigations. It was something that the prior administration, not only here, the Department of Justice, but of course in the White House as well, shelved, for lack of a better term. So why do you think these investigations make a difference? And do you think it places too much of a burden for solving these problems on police departments across the country? Yeah, this is important work. Americans deserve access to constitutional policing. And we have opened up pattern or practice investigations in Louisville, in Minneapolis, Phoenix, and Mount Vernon. And what we find is that, you know, we're not focused on isolated incidents. What we find is that there, these are often systemic problems. It's hard work, it requires a lot of resources on the part of the department, but uh, it's a problem that we can't ignore. We know that there are people who uh, want to ensure that their communities are safe. And uh, this will be a priority, continue to be a priority for us in the Civil Rights Division as we march forward. Can you give me your assessment of what changed after, or maybe it was before George Floyd's death, because after 2014 and Michael Brown's death in Ferguson, Missouri, there was this push behind reform. But it seems after Minneapolis, all that changed. And now you have police departments who can't hire cops. Officers are retiring in large numbers. Police forces across the country are really, uh, they lack the resources. What changed? What happened? Yeah. Well, what we know is after the tragic killing of George Floyd, communities across our country have really started to pay attention in ways that they may not have previously. This has always been a problem with us, but the cameras are, are rolling and people are documenting what's happening. And what we are doing at the Justice Department is, uh, you know, playing our part, using the law to hold policemen, police departments accountable when they engage in systemic practices of violating people's civil rights. Uh, we've got grant making and technical assistance and lots of tools that we use across the department to stand up to this issue. But we know that this is an issue that is top of mind for many Americans. We're using the tools that we can at the Justice Department to promote 
uh, better, safer constitutional policing for communities. Let's switch gears a little bit more, talking about Trayvon Martin. That's another anniversary that's approaching. There are African-American mothers, fathers concerned about their sons. What has changed in the last 10 years to how society, police, see young black men? I mean, as a, a mother, I care deeply about this issue. As a lawyer, I care deeply about this issue. Um, you know, we've, we've got to keep pressing. And our, our work to reform police departments and to hold individuals accountable when they violate people's civil rights, when they take a, a life without basis, it, it, that is among the, the hardest work that we do here inside the Justice Department. I hope that people will remain hopeful. There, the national conversation that is happening around the need for police reform and police accountability has reached a fevered pitch, and, and we hear the public every day that we're doing this work inside the Justice Department. You got one vote from a Republican during your confirmation hearing. Is that right? Yes. How do you feel about that? You, you, when you knew this, you knew this, well, you heard this question coming out, and I could see, I don't know, how do you feel about that? You know, I started off my career here inside the Justice Department. I'm a lifelong civil rights lawyer. I do not view this work as partisan work. I view this work as a unique and special opportunity to promote justice every day, a chance to breathe life into the Constitution and its promise, a chance to stand up for the silent and the voiceless and the marginalized. So I'm proud to be in this seat, and I'm very hopeful to use every moment that I'm here in this job to promote equal justice under law for all. Yeah, how do you, how do you convince people that, well, how do you do that? These are some very divisive issues. How do you run that office so that Republicans across this country, moderates across this country, believe that you are acting in the interest of all Americans? How do you do it? Yeah. Well, it's an amazing team inside the Civil Rights Division and across the department. Dedicated um, civil servants, Folks who've been here for decades across Republican and Democratic administrations who are committed to doing one thing, following the facts and seeing where they lead and applying the law. And that's what we're going to continue to do each and every day. You had an interesting upbringing. Um, So I want to tick through some of these points. Your parents came here from Jamaica. You grew up in Brooklyn. What part of Brooklyn? Uh, East New York. East New York. Okay. So what happened in East New York, where I've been there many times, what happened in East New York that shaped who you are now? Yeah, um, you know, I definitely have been shaped by uh, my parents who came here in the hopes that their kids would have a shot, uh, have a chance at getting a good education, and I feel like I, I got that shot. And uh, I have dedicated my life to using that shot, to standing up 
for our nation's most vulnerable communities. And uh, I can't think of a better place to do this work than right here at the Justice Department. Mm -hmm. But where does that, what is in you, that passion to stand up for people? Did something happen in your neighborhood? Did your parents tell you stories? Was there something that shaped you? Yeah. Something specific? Yeah. Well, look, I, you know, I know what it's like uh, for families who grow up poor and who struggle, um, who live paycheck to paycheck. I, I know what that experience is like. I know what it's like to be marginalized, sidelined, and silenced. And that personal perspective shapes who I am. And it's a lens that I use sometimes as I view the work that, you know, I do as a civil rights lawyer. Um, I hope that, you know, to the extent that there's somebody out there who's watching who, uh, you know, wonders, you know, how can the law be used as a tool for transformation? I hope that they're able to um, draw a little bit of inspiration from my journey, my pathway, and how I've tried to use the law to stand up for the voiceless and the marginalized. You went from East New York to Choate, one of the most prestigious prep schools in the country. How did you adapt? Um... <laughs> you know, I just settled right in. It was very It must not have been it, easy at that time. No, not easy. A very different environment than East New York. Um, but I got a chance to do a whole lot. My third year, I had an amazing teacher, Mr. Goodyear, uh, Mr. Who, Goodyear. who hauled us into a van and took us up to Hartford, Connecticut, where I got to sit in and watch a proceeding in a school desegregation case that was playing out at that time. And that early opportunity uh, helped me to see the power of the law as a tool for change. It helped me to see the role that civil rights lawyers play in our society. And so in many ways, Choate has a lot to do with my journey to where I am today. We've been told by people that you don't back down from a fight. Is that accurate? <laughs> I think that's fair. You do? Yeah. Okay. And where did you develop that um, that type of attitude. Where you're, you know, right now, what's running through my head is that image of a little girl in the bull on Wall Street. Yeah. So you you will take on anything. And I guess you did that at Choate because I'm hearing that you were on the boys' yeah. <laughs> wrestling team. I, I was. Um, it was a great experience. Um, I was the only girl on the team at that time. Um, there were just a handful of girls that... Uh, schools across the country dabbling with uh, wrestling. What made uh, you want to wrestle? You know, I to be frank with you, I didn't know how to dribble a basketball. Uh -huh. um, I, 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 you know, couldn't skate, so ice hockey was out. And so I, I just watched those guys wrestling. Two hours of intense practice followed by like a mile or two of laps around the track and thought, I think I can keep up with them. I think I've got the heart to keep up with them. It's a great experience. Yeah, I wonder what those guys say about you now. <laughs> Not sure. <laughs> <laughs> we might have to find out. Uh, Andy, do we have any more questions? How did you feel when you walked in after your confirmation? First yeah. black woman. Well, 
I really thought about the fact that this is the place where it all got started. This is the place where I started my career. So what a privilege and an honor to have the chance to serve the public at this time uh, and in this role. Um, it's not lost on me, the people um, who have come through the halls of this building. Uh, Thurgood Marshall, you know, the nation's first black Supreme Court justice. I deem it an honor to have this chance to serve. Who, who else do you look up to? You mentioned Thurgood Marshall. Is there somebody else that you hold up there? Constance Baker Motley. Constance uh, Baker Motley. The woman and unsung Shiro, who was often by the side of Thurgood Marshall, working on many of the seminal cases from the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, she's absolutely somebody that I look up to uh, greatly. The wait of the moment, when you were confirmed, being the first African-American woman to hold that... Uh, proud. Proud to have this chance to serve. And, you know, I'm, I am hopeful that if there is somebody out there who watched my, my journey, my pathway, that they might draw inspiration that... Um, the people realize that those glass ceilings, they eventually do come tumbling down. I know that I won't be the last black woman uh, in this role. But, you know, I think what I feel most of all is that I'm somebody who's dedicated my life to doing this work. And I am humbled, truly humbled to get this opportunity to um, serve in this role now. Let's explore what's going on in Ukraine. I realize that there's a lot going on here in the U.S. between the pandemic, inflation, the price of gas, and frankly, I could go on. But there are negotiations underway between the U.S., its NATO allies, and Russia. Russia has some 100,000 troops near its border with Ukraine, and there are serious concerns that Putin is planning an invasion. Luke Harding, a foreign correspondent with The Guardian, joins us now. He is in Ukraine. So you are in uh, Kiev. Can you can you tell me what the latest is there? Yeah, well, Jeff, I mean, I think the mood is, is, is quite mixed. I mean, on the one hand, uh, Ukraine has just celebrated Orthodox Christmas. If I look out of my, look out of my window, I can see snow. It's pretty cold uh, here at the moment. The, the sort of trees around Kiev's Independence Square uh, are covered in white, uh, and it's still festive. The decorations are still up, and some 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 Ukrainians I, I, I talk to say, "Look, we don't really want to think about this too hard. We've been living in a crisis situation since 2014, when you'll remember Russia um, annexed Crimea, started a war in the east of the country, currently occupies about seven percent of Ukrainian territory, uh, and they say, "Look, you know, we've we've got our lives to worry about. We've got COVID. We've got." We've just got daily existence. Uh, and then you talk to other people who are more kind of plugged into the politics here. And of course, they are they are trepidatious. I mean, I, I wouldn't say there's a mood of panic here. I mean, the mood is quite is quite calm. I mean, you, you, Ukraine has been living with this reality for a long time. But I talked last night, for example, to someone called Andrei Zagoryodnyuk, who was until recently Ukraine's defense minister. And he was saying, look, I'm pretty certain the Russians are going to do something. They have momentum. They have pressure. They have 100,000 troops on the border. And the rhetoric from Moscow has been extremely aggressive and inflammatory. And, and we expect some kind of operation. Although, interestingly, he said that he didn't think there will be a full-scale invasion of Ukraine because 
well, it, it's a huge country. And if, if the Ukrainian soldiers were to come and seize territory, they would immediately find themselves embroiled in a, in a bloody and long partisan war. Mm, but but still you say people aren't panicked. That that really stands out to me. And I think it, it reminds me of how uh, fortunate we here in America are that, uh, you know, we're not in that kind of situation where you, you have troops of an adversary massing on a border. I mean, it's just... You know, I, I think it's hard for a lot of Americans to comprehend. And of course, with so many other things going on, you know, Ukraine isn't at the the top of their list to worry about at this point. But but you're saying Ukrainians, so the people there aren't panicking. Yeah, Jeff, just to be clear, it, it's not complacency. Um, it, it, it's merely that the Ukrainians have got used to, to war. I mean, there's been a war here for almost eight years. And um, I was last in Ukraine uh, in, in December, and I went to the front line around essentially Russian-controlled, Russian-occupied or Russian proxy-occupied territories um, outside the city of Donetsk and Luhansk in the east of the country, where it looks like the First World War. I mean, the, the Ukrainian military is literally sitting in trenches, muddy trenches, now snowy trenches, facing off uh, against a Russian adversary, in some cases less than 80 meters away, with with sniper fire, with with exchanges, and there's a kind of unofficial ceasefire at the moment. But last year, 66 Ukrainian soldiers were killed, most of them shot by snipers. Another couple of hundred were, were, were wounded. So this is a kind of grinding conflict that hasn't actually stopped. So so that, that, that that's the reality. You know, the question is, what will Vladimir Putin do next? Will there be a kind of further escalation, a, per, a further invasion? And and nobody even no, nobody really knows. And interestingly, I've just literally been watching Wendy Sherman, the the, the um, deputy um, uh, uh, secretary, um, who who has been meeting with with the Russian delegation uh, under the auspices of NATO in Brussels, uh, and she basically said she didn't really know what was going to happen either. You know what what the heck? You know I I don't know. She said, um, and and essentially. The, the, the problem with trying to anticipate events is, you know, we are peering inside Vladimir Putin's head, which is a slightly uncomfortable exercise. And, and we don't know. We know that he feels extremely emotional about Ukraine, that he wrote a, a, a long pseudo-historical essay last summer where he said that Ukraine and Russia were one people, that, that he feels that the very existence of Ukraine is an affront, affront to Russia, that they are a sort of Russia and Ukraine are a spiritual unity, a, a territorial unity. But whether he's going to try and actualize any of this and and really, you know, cr- create the biggest upheaval in 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 European security for three decades, we we, we just don't know. You you refer to these talks, these ongoing talks between the U.S. and NATO, uh, Russia, and peering into Vladimir's head, which, as you know, it is complicated. But what we know about him is, as a former KGB agent, he is someone who views Russia or would like to see Russia become the Soviet Union again in terms of its influence across the globe. Is that accurate? Yeah, I, I mean, I think, I think, I think broadly. I mean, I think 
the, what do you have to understand about contemporary Russia? I mean, I I, I lived in, I was the Guardian's bureau chief in Moscow for four years until I got kicked, kicked out. But is that there are sort of two projects going on. One is a private project where Putin and his friends essentially have have, have stolen state resources over two decades and become fantastically rich. I mean, they're all billionaires. That That's the private project. But the, the public project, which we can see all the time, is a noisy, uh, revisionist um, uh, sort of program to, to coin a phrase, to make Russia great again. That's Putin's mission. That's how he sees himself in historical terms. And I, I'm not sure he wants to sort of literally... Um, bring back the Soviet Union. I mean, he's not interested in kind of communist ide- ideology or Lenin, but he, what he wants is for Russia to be a, a great power, uh, a co-equal to the United States. That's foundational for him. Uh, and also, as, as it has become clear from his kind of demands to, 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 to America and its allies, to turn the clock back um, to a sort of pre-Cold War European security arrangement where, where Moscow, in effect, dominated and controlled Eastern Europe, the countries of the former Warsaw Pact. So obviously former Soviet republics like Ukraine, which is which is crucial to Putin, but but also Poland, Romania, Bulgaria, the, you know, as far as he's concerned, the, this is kind of Russia's domain and, and fiefdom. Um, and um, it, it's it's kind of astonishing that 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 he should be saying this, but he he believes it or he appears to believe it. And and moreover, he thinks the West is weak. He thinks the Biden administration is weak. He thinks we Brits, I'm, I'm British, that we're preoccupied with our own problems with Brexit, with Boris Johnson's failings and inadequacies uh, and so on. And I think he sees this as an opportune moment to press his vision for how uh, you know global security, the global international order should be run. How does Kazakhstan fit into this? The, the latest wrinkle in these negotiations is Russia sends troops to Kazakhstan. Yeah, I, I mean, Jeff, Kazakhstan is fascinating. I mean, I, I, I've been there, but 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 a while ago, and I, I and I think many other kind of Russia or former Soviet Union watchers are, 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 are puzzling to understand what precisely happened there there recently. I mean, it, what's interesting is Takayev, the Kazakh president. Was was trained in Moscow. He worked at the Soviet Foreign Ministry, and you know what's clear after the after the violent events in in the country and, and the deployment, as you say, of Russian troops, is that Kazakhstan is very firmly back under, uh, or un, not under Russia's control, but in Russia's orbit. And and previously under Nazarbayev, the the the, the former president, you know, Kazakhstan sort of triangulated between America, China, and Russia. It tried to have a sort of largely independent foreign policy. That is not the case. It's it's now very much um, looking to Russia, I, I think. And you have to wonder, actually, whether Russia played a role in last week's events, because it's worked out very much to its advantage. All right, let's, let's go back to focusing on these negotiations. Where do you think this is headed? I mean, I mean that—that's the million ruble question. Where—where where is this headed? Um, I think—I think nowhere good. I, I mean, I just don't—I <clears throat> I don't see—I um, don't see an off ramp for for Putin for, from this point. I mean, as Wendy Sherman was saying, I mean, there are a hundred thousand troops at the border, live fire exercises going on this morning. Um, uh, really belligerent rhetoric from Moscow, um, d- demands which are just 
you, you know, so off the scale that, that, that the Russian side know that, that NATO, that the US, the West can, cannot agree to them. Uh, and so, how, you know, how, how could Putin back down without losing face? I mean, uh, answer, he can't. So I think, I think some kind of operation against Ukraine is now likely, but, but whether that's full-scale in, invasion, which, you know, my, my contacts, my sources don't, don't think is going to happen, or whether it's something lesser than that, maybe some kind of hybrid warfare, cyber attacks, attacks on um, Ukrainian infrastructure, power facilities, you know, propaganda, of course, we, 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 we don't know. But but I think once these talks conclude, we're in a very, very kind of dangerous and volatile situation where nothing happens and then perhaps something happens very quickly. Well, who do you think is under the most pressure here? Because you said there's, there doesn't appear to be a really clear off-ramp for Putin. But in some ways, you know, I'm watching the situation from afar, watching how the U.S. administration, the Biden administration is responding to it. And I wonder if, if President Biden is under more pressure here to appear tough, to solve this crisis, to back the Ukraine. What do you think? Well, I, I mean, I, I think, I think the, the, in a way, the question is bigger than that. It is, is, it's a question for the Biden administration, for sure, but also for, for, uh, for his allies in, in Europe, is, is essentially, how do you deal with uh, what, what is, in effect, a rogue state? That's what Russia is, that's prepared to use force to, to send tanks in to invade neighboring countries, to change you know, post-1945 borders by, 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 by military means that that is in a it lives in a totally different place different mental reality that from a western point of view is completely irrational and crazy i mean the idea that ukraine threatened threatens russia when R- russia has got the you know the, the biggest nuclear arsenal in the world um together with the the, the us a, a, a enormous military vast land space i mean it seems ludicrous but this is how it's being framed uh, on, on Russian channels, and and I, I'm not sure the Biden administration has quite, you know, got its strategic calculation right. It, it, it seems to think that kind of China is the big adversary, and if if it can somehow make nice to Russia, then it can concentrate on China. Well, that's not how, not how Vladimir Putin sees it, and what he sees is weakness. He pushes, he does something, you know, egregious, whether it's assassinating a, a Russian dissident in in the UK, or or. Um, you know, escalating the situation on the Ukrainian border, and he waits for a response. And if it's just words, he's not too worried. I mean, what what the Biden administration could have done or should have done would have been to arm Ukraine more fulsomely so so that the the, the price in terms of a Russian attack becomes higher and higher and higher. Uh, And I'm still not entirely, I mean, I I don't mean to single out Biden, but, but you know, generally Western leaders, I think, have still not kind of grasped what they're dealing with here, and and this is someone with, I would argue, pretty sociopathic tendencies, um, who will push and push and push until until he hits a hard surface. By the way, before we wrap this up, you said that you were in Russia until you were kicked out. What got you kicked out? Ha. Huh. Well, I mean, I've written I've written several books about Russia. The one I wrote after I got kicked out was called Mafia State, um, which perhaps gives you a clue. <laughs> that was bold. You know, by that point I had nothing to lose. But but 
you know, I never kind of found out, but but essentially what, what you know, briefly, Jeff, what happened to, to me as a kind of correspondent was that the FSB, which is the successor agency to the KGB that, that Vladimir Putin ran before he became uh, prime minister and president, um, just kind of pursued me. I think because of the sort of stories I was writing, I mean, you know, one of them was about, I asked a very simple question, how much money does Vladimir Putin have? Very unwelcome question. Uh, and also, I tried to get to the bottom of the murder. You'll probably remember in 2006, a, a Russian dissident in London called uh, Alexander Litvinenko was poisoned with a cup of radioactive tea uh, in a hotel just around the corner from the US embassy. And I tried to find out whether the Russian state you know, was involved in that, in that, in that super secret operation. And, and b- both these stories, I think, were kind of red lines. We had a series of break-ins at our family apartment where I was living with my wife and our two small kids. The British embassy advised us that we were bugged. Uh, and I was sort of treated like a kind of hostile... I don't know, like a CIA officer or a MI6 agent or something like that, and you know, followed around, bugged, surveilled, and eventually deported. Um, and you know, since then, Russia has only got darker, unfortunately. And what we've seen, and you know, certainly since the return of Ale- Alexei Navalny, the Russian dissident who flew back from Berlin to Moscow in January of last year, is we've seen a complete clampdown on civil society. Journalist friends of mine in Russia have have, have been branded foreign agents. Many of them have fled the country. It, it, it's really darker now than it was during the late Soviet Union. Um, and, you know, domestically repressive, internationally aggressive. And, and I think of all the foreign policy problems in Biden's entry, I, th- I really think that Russia is number one. This is another interesting conversation that I want to have when I, when I talk about how, you know, how fortunate we are in this country. And even as a journalist, I... You know, I've been in this business for 30 years. I've been in some pretty uh, uncomfortable situations. But besides my own paranoia, paranoia, I don't I don't think I've ever been followed uh, by a state entity. Uh, the kind of uh, situation that you describe working in Russia. Why? I don't know. Why do you subject yourself to that? Why do you, your family was there with you? Did you have second thoughts about being a journalist at that point? Yeah. I, I mean, followed by a state entity, or, or you might call it, you know, two rather dim looking agents wearing cheap leather jackets and, and brown shoes who would sit next to me in, in, in restaurants. <laughs> and put, this is in the pre-iPhone era, put a kind of bag on the table, clearly with a listening device. They obviously didn't speak English. They had to kind of take it and transcribe it later on. And it was it was sort of it was sort of funny. It was more comedy than KGB, but but there were other moments which were less funny. I mean, for example, <clears throat> on one occasion we came back from a weekend away to discover that the 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 window, we lived on the 10th floor in an apartment block in Moscow, to my six-year-old son's bedroom, which we had locked when we left, had been bust open propped open next to his bed. And, and, and the message was pretty clear that, that actually, you know, watch out or your, your kids might meet with a unfortunate accident. And, and it's this mixture of, you know, menace and thuggishness uh, and also mendacity. I mean, there's nothing new about, about Russian leaders lying. I mean, it's the great sort of Soviet tradition of that. But, you know, you know P- Putin lies to, it's something he, he learned how to perfect at KGB school to discomfort his enemies. You know, he'll, he'll talk, He'll talk about, you know, America, you know, our Western partners, et cetera, et cetera. But basically, he is a sort of classic zero-sum thinker who, who, who is um, 
just you know essentially anti anti American. I mean, it's a priori for him. He he, he thinks that that um, the, the U.S. is is Russia's eternal adversary and and sees it his as his his role not just of kind of restoring Russian greatness but of undermining Western democracy in general and America in particular. And and you know we've seen what happened in 2016 in the U.S. I don't want to kind of relitigate that. But but this is ongoing. This is the same Putin. And he also sees Western leaders as, as ephemeral, you know, here today, gone tomorrow. I mean, today it's Biden, tomorrow it'll be someone else. You know, Boris Johnson, you know, probably is going to be gone in months in, in my country, in the UK. And Putin carries on. I mean, he, 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 he is an epoch. I mean, he's a man. Uh, he's a man on a mission. And that, that makes him very, very dangerous. Luke Harding, really appreciate your time, your expertise. Be safe. <laughs> I'll do my best, Jeff. <laughs> that is it for this week's America Change Forever. You can download previous episodes wherever you download your podcasts. Also, you can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Begay's CBS, where you can send program ideas. What do you want us to look into? And follow me on Instagram at Jeff Begay's 6. My thanks to Paul Woody Woodhull and District Productive. I'm Jeff Begays, and that is how America changed forever. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.